Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. One of the many joys of doing this podcast is when my esteemed co-host loses his cool facade and he gets to feel all the feelings when he meets one of his favorite performers. Well, today, folks, uh, this is going to be one of those days. <laughs> wow, just not even trying to hide like the embarrassment. No, nope. nope. thank you. Nope. Out of all these interviews, hundreds of interviews, and now I'm like giddy like a schoolgirl. This man has really truly been on the top of my list since we started this podcast. Uh, So just been trying so hard and so I'm so excited as you guys can tell in my voice. Um, He has appeared in the High Roller Society, the Who's Tommy, Rent, the Wild Party, Big River, Next to Normal, and of course, everyone you know, my where I became the number one fan, of course, was 1997 production of Violet, my favorite musical of all time. Yes, and now he is shaping the next generation of artists as the chair of musical theater at the University of Michigan to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Denzel Washington, Terrence McNally, former guest Vivian Reed, Janine Tesori, and so many others. Here is the Grammy award-winning Professor Michael McElroy. Michael, how are you today? I'm great, Rob. I'm great, Kevin. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, now that I've played matchmaker, Kevin, I can, I'll can. i step aside and let you <laughs> geek out as much as you want. Michael, we, we said this before we went on the air. Michael, you are our youngest guest by by many, many years. We, we You were on the top of our list when we first started, and we realized we should probably get some of the older people in first. So that's the only reason... <laughs> We've delayed this long. Michael, what's it like now to transition from the professional world into the world of academia? Because you're at academia now at a very exciting time where it seems like everything is starting to shift. Well, that's a good question. Um, It actually goes back because before I came to Michigan, I was at uh, NYU Mm -hmm. for 10 years. Yep. And I was a part of this uh, group of faculty who began the new, new studio on Broadway, which is the musical theater. Um, program there in undergraduate drama. 
And the way that happened was I was on the last national, international tour of Rent. And uh, that was after we closed on Broadway. And I'd been going since January. I think it was 2008. And we got to about October, November. And we were in Appleton, Wisconsin. And I got the swine flu. And so I never Mm -hmm. left my hotel room. My friends would come and bring food. They'd knock and run. And then I got there on Monday, was in bed, you know, just shaking, sweating for four days. And finally went to the emergency room. That's where they said that's what it was. And I stayed in the rest of that week, never saw the stage, never saw anything, uh, any part of the production that week, and then started back again the following week on the tour. But what happened was from that time until March when we closed, my voice never fully came back. It was like, you know, it was all of the skill and technique I had to get through each show because the role required my full range. And so started to kind of take some of the joy out of what I was doing because I was so not scared, but just focused on just getting it out. And I remember saying on a last city, I think it was like San Diego, somewhere like that in California. And I remember this, that quiet voice, not the one that, you know, acts out, not the ego, that quiet, scary voice that tells you mm-hmm. the truth said, I, you know, I think it's time to not do this anymore. And the next day I got a phone call from Kent Gash saying, we're starting this program. And we want you to come in and apply for this job. And I went in when I, the tour closed a week later, I went in, I worked with students. I met with the selection committee, the search committee. Then a week later, I was meeting with the, the chair of the department. And then another week I was meeting with the dean of faculty, then the dean. And I was like, oh crap. I mean, right. I may get this job. This is going to happen. Um, you know, uh, and I had such a mixed feeling about it because my time at Carnegie Mellon, which was uh, where I trained, was some of the best training I could have gotten, but also some of the most challenging times yeah. as well. Yeah. And so stepping into a space of leadership, of teaching, my mom right. was a teacher. I was like, maybe it's time to make that transition. Be careful what you say out loud. Be careful what you think. And then I started teaching and I loved it. And I balanced I think next to normal while I started teaching, I did something in the park while I was still teaching. Right. So I was able to balance them living in New York. Um, and then this came up during uh, the quarantine. And I was like, absolutely not. I will not leave New York City. And finally, after a year of teaching from this very spot and seeing our city and how decimated it was and yeah. how much of a ghost town it was, yeah. I was like, you could leave after 30 years and not be missing anything. And so I said yes, and um, it has been the most amazing year. Congratulations, and those students are so lucky to have you. So lucky to have you. you. Let's actually go back a little bit and talk about your education. So Mm. before you went to Carnegie Mellon, how did you first fall in love with the arts? Well, I'm lucky that I grew up in the 70s when they valued arts education as a part of, you know, supporting young minds and hearts. And so it was an integral part of my education. And I had this really interesting upbringing because my my stepfather was a minister. My grandfather was the minister that started the church. So I had this whole rich life as, you know, a preacher's kid, you know, playing for Sunday school, singing in the choir, and all of my family are musicians. So my mom still, she's 82, she still plays every Sunday. My brother plays every Sunday. My sister plays every Sunday. All my nieces and nephews, right? And um, so I grew up in that environment, but then I grew up in the suburbs where we had this great choral program, this great theater program, you know, art program, dance program. And so I was exposed to these two different worlds at the same time. And I remember when I was eight years old, they took our elementary school class downtown to see the national tour of Porgy and Bess. 
I saw those people on stage and I said, and I connected that they looked like me <laughs> and they were doing something that sparked something in me. And I said, I want to do that. And it turned out I had an uncle, have an uncle who was a musical director. He'd come stay with us every summer and musical direct shows in the Cleveland area, like the Obama stage and all these other places. And uh, he would take me to the rehearsals and he would take me to see touring cast that come, came through. He would take me to all the performances and I just loved it. So all around me was this music and theater um, and there was just no other choice. And when um, I got to high school, I had a really great theater program, a really great choral program. And then it was just deciding where to go. Was I going to go the music route, the mm. singing route, or the theater route? And it just so happens that we used to have recruiters who would come to our high school. And if you went to a recruiter's session, you got out of a class, you got a pass. Mm. And I had a math test on a specific day that I don't think I was fully prepared to walk that road. And so I just went to whatever college fair was happening that day. So and smart. It was, and it was Carnegie Mellon. Oh my God. And they had a musical theater program, which combined the things that I loved. And so my mom was mm -hmm. like, okay, let's go. So we went for a visit, a visit. I walked on that campus. I said, this is where I want to be. And I auditioned in New York and got in and went there for not four, but five years. Do you remember what your audition pieces were? I sure do. What yes. were they? So I, you said, okay, no humble pie, but this is what happened. Yes. It was the old men's golf studios up that yep. rickety staircase. And the first thing I did was a dance call. So it was a ballet combination and a jazz combination. Uh, and then I went into the acting room with Mel Shapiro, who was the head of the program at that time. And I did my, started my first piece. And he went, oh, I don't want to hear that. Let me hear your other. And I went right into my Shakespeare piece. And then he goes, come over here. Come sit over oh. here. So I come sit over there. And he goes, tell me about the time that you you um, stole that car. And I was like, huh? At the time you stole that. And so I just started talking and he would just throw questions at me. And it was all about improvisation. He goes, go wait out in the hall. So I go out in the hall and then the assistant uh, chair at that time came in and then came out and goes, we want to accept you. And I was like, oh, well, I haven't sung. I haven't sung yet. He goes, well, we want to sing. I said, well, I'm going to sing because that's yeah. the thing that I was like, I can do. <laughs> right. That's like, yeah. So I went back in the room. I sang God bless the child and something's coming from West Side Story. So okay, so you got accepted halfway through an audition. That's uh, that's that's pretty special. Now, wait, you said you were there for five years? A whopping five, because that first year was really challenging for me. You know, mm. the transition from um, where I grew up to being on my own, exploring my identity, all of those things at that time in conservatory training weren't always welcomed in the room. <laughs> And so yeah. as I'm trying to navigate who I am for the first time on my own, we're also at the time being messaged that all of who you are is not welcome. And I had a hard time with that. And so at the end of my first year, I had not progressed in a way that they felt was worthy of moving forward. And where I was on the process of getting cut because I was trying to get a cut system. And um, it just so happened that I worked in the office and was able to communicate with some people. And they said, well, you can come back but you have to repeat your first year. And in mm. that, it was like a fire of, now I have to prove it to myself that I can do it. And it's not so much about proving it to them, it's about proving it to myself. Yeah. Mm. And that kind of um, commitment to my own work and to being my greatest support system and greatest critic was kind of instilled in that moment. And I recognized that all these people in this program that are teaching this program are brilliant people, flawed, but they have something that I need. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to go back and I'm going to get everything I can from them, recognizing that there was a world that was waiting for me when I left there. Though I thought I would never work. Did you think you were going to work prior to you started your training? 
and then that just got kind of knocked out of you by faculty or I wasn't, yes yes i was in a class of a lot of leading men yeah mm. and so i played a lot of character roles but i always had in the back of my mind that they didn't think that i was good enough but on the same mm. and the same on the same vein i had on the other side, well, then I'm just going to work harder and prove it to myself. Mm-hmm. Ah, so those okay, two things right. worked in conjunction. And uh, when I was getting ready to graduate, we, we showcased in New York. And I was like, I'm not going to work because I only play character roles. I'm not going to work for at least 10 years. So I just knew I wasn't going to have a job. And we did our showcase. Mm-hmm. And I got, and it was so brutal back then. What they used to do is after you finish your showcase, they would take you back to an alum's ha- apartment. And all of the class would sit in the living room till about one o'clock, one thirty in the morning. And then they would come out and they'd have like 10 pieces of paper for one person, a half a page for someone else, nothing for this person. And then the next two days you would spend going to these calls. Ooh, and right. from that, I had a call at uh, the public theater to audition for Shakespeare in the Park. So I went down the next day. I auditioned for the director and the casting director who was an alum of Carnegie Mellon. And I uh, did my um, monologue that I'd been doing, the same Shakespeare monologue that I got me into Carnegie. And a day later, they told me I was cast in Richard III with Denzel Washington. Um, and I went back to school to graduate knowing that I had a job. Well, that's incredible. Let me ask you a question from an academic point of view. Do you think a cut system is healthy for one of these <laughs> programs? Or how do you navigate it over at your your school? You cannot cut people from your program. Is that right? Well, this is a different time. Okay. So, you know, you can't, it's like comparing apples and oranges. When you look at the social systems we have now, internet, (laughs) Instagram, you know, we have all these ways of articulating and having a platform. Back then there was no platform. Mm. So these things would happen in a vacuum where, Mm. Who are you going to, and also we were socialized at that time, whether you were in conservatory training or in any kind of teacher-student um, dynamic, that they right. knew everything, yep. what they said was right. And so it never would have crossed our minds to contradict or to fight back or to, you know, in any way speak out about anything. So it was a different time. Now you can be four years old and have a social platform and yeah. it doesn't end and you don't even have to be truthful. You can say anything you want. And there's no, you know, so the world is so different. I don't think a cut system could exist in this time because it doesn't look good. It doesn't, yeah. um, it's not a great marketing tool. Yes, yeah. Right? Um, at that time, and do I believe in the cut system? No, I, I'm conflicted about it. I think sometimes a student gets in a program and they go, oh, this isn't right for me. Mm-hmm. And sometimes doesn't know how to say it. Um, but those are conversations you have. But what it has done is made program much more um, specific about who they accept, you know. Um, so there isn't this like, we're going to accept 50, but we know we're only going to matriculate 18. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's just a different world. What's something that you learned from your teachers that you still bring into the classroom with you today as an educator? Either I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this because it made me feel bad. So I won't do that to my students. Either one. Yes. Um, On both sides. On one side, um, I had a teacher named Victoria Santa Cruz who was from Peru. And we took this physical movement class with her. And it was all about rhythm, but not counting. Mm. And her big thing was be there. 
right? And it would be present, be in this moment, not in the moment that's to come, not in the moment that's past, but be fully present and you're available to any and everything, mm. to possibility. So that's always stuck with me. On the other side, it was this idea that being gay, I could not bring my full self in the room. So it caused this kind of like cutting yourself and, you know, and separating what you thought you needed to be in the work mm. from who you truly were. And what I've learned is all of that can exist. It's just transforming to serve the character. But every human being has love and, you know, jealousy and greed and, and, and humor and all those things. So it took me a long time to realize that I could bring my full self in the room and that my job as an artist, as an actor, was to transform. And that did not mean that I was denying my truth or yes. denying a part of myself. And so it took me a long time to realize that and to know when I became a teacher that I would never, ever give up on a student mm. um, and because I felt like they gave up on me. Mm -hmm. Were you out in college? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't out to my family, but I was yeah. out to my classmates. Yeah. I didn't do anything. I was a more, I was not going to say, let me say that. I was um, <laughs> in my own dormitory nunnery, but I, I was yes, definitely yes. out. Yeah. yeah. And because one of the things we've talked about with some of the other people on this, on this program is that schools back then used to say, if that's who you were, don't advertise that. Yes. Was, was that something that was ever told to you in your, in your classroom environment? I was told to be more like a football player. I didn't know what the hell that meant. Yep. Um, but I have to say, I, 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 I don't want to like, you know, crap on Carnegie Mellon. No, 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 no. Amazing training I received, but it was a different time yes. where there was a different kind of dynamic between teacher and student. And there was a different kind of time in how people articulated the process to yes. young Yes. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, I under, you can't say I, that now. No, I understand entirely. We're both educators and we both yeah. went through. Now tell us, yeah. you've gotten a job before you've even gotten your diploma. Mazel tov. Mm -hmm. what, what an honor. Thank you. What what was it like to then go to New York and have your first day of rehearsal at the public? Richard III, Denzel Washington, who was directing it? Robin Phillips. He was from, I'm not Toronto Shakespeare Festival, but it was one of those Shakespeare festivals. Yeah. One of Stratford? Those. Stratford, yeah. that's where it okay. was. Okay. And he was, uh, he directed it. Mary Alice was in it. I don't know if you oh know my Alice God. Is. Yes, from she Fences. Uh, yes, she was phenomenal. And then he brought uh, Tom Hewitt, who I just saw the other night in Hadestown. It was his first show in New York. He was having a company member at a theater in uh, D.C. Mm -hmm. and, at the arena stage. And it was his very first job. He was in that. A uh, bunch of people that we've seen in TV and film over the years. Um, and it was all our first job. Because at that time, they would populate their ensembles of the Shakespeare Festival with students from NYU grad acting, Juilliard, Carnegie Mellon, and SUNY Purchase. They made up the bulk of their, their, their ensembles because it's not equity, but it was a way to get your foot in the door. So, right, and work yeah. with real professionals. Yeah. What did yeah. you learn watching people like yeah. Mary Alice and Denzel Washington? If Mary we, Alice, yes. oh my God, I, I, I was in love with her. I have been so fortunate in that I have been able to work with people that I grew up seeing. Like yeah. the second show I saw, uh, when I was nine, was the national tour of The Wiz. Oh. Stephanie Mills was out. Her understudy was on. It was Lilius White. Uh, I saw the national tour of West Side Story. Leslie Uggams was Maria. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, all these people that I have now since worked with, I right. saw on in national tours when I was growing up. 
And every time I get, got to work with people, I would always, you know, take my time. I don't like to crowd people. And then once we mm-hmm. have said hello and gotten a little friendly, then I like get a chair and I'm like, okay, tell me everything. <laughs> yes. I want all about yes. you. I want to know about your history. When I worked with Diane Carroll, that's, um, I did Come Blue on. with her out in California. Yes. And I let it look a couple of weeks go by. And then I was like, can we go to lunch? <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, I want to know everything. Yeah. And I was saying with Leslie, when I, Leslie and I worked together for the first time out at, um, a theater in New Jersey, uh, doing play on, uh, I waited and we happened to be out in the hallway together. And I was like, I saw you in West Side Story. And then we <laughs> talked about that. And then it just rolled on from there because that legacy of those people that you grow yes, up admiring. That's right. That's right. Um, I don't think we have that so much anymore. People, you know, in rehearsal rooms, we used to go in there and you to watch great watch. people work. It was like, magical you learned yes. you absorbed just from the energy in the space let alone the craft that you saw unfolding now everyone sits in the corner they're on their phone but i think we lost something that we need to find a way to get back yeah. as an actor do you enjoy a lot of table work or do you like to get up onto your feet and start moving around instinctually what's your process my process has always been get off book as fast as possible because if i'm thinking about lines i can't be open and available to the space mm-hmm. so my thing is always drill 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 for me that gives me freedom right uh and so for me it's learn the music learn it be accurate learn the lines so that you can let it go and be open and find something in the room though i have my own ideas those ideas take a back seat to they form like the foundation but they're not you know the thing yeah. that i hold on to in the room when you're when you're reading through the script or you're reading through the score do you sit there and go okay in this scene the objective is this and blah 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 or do you just absorb it and go how do i relate to this person that i'm gonna play the second i i i don't uh think in terms of, even though i learned all of those things about objectives super objectives obstacles and all that i read it the first couple of times and just kind of yeah. let it wash over me and i and like for example with violet when i read that character i was like i know him I know who Mm. he is. I know exactly who he was. And so from the first time I read it, even though it evolved over time, because the first time we did it, it was only the first act at at Eugene O'Neill. From the first time I started reading and singing that music, I knew that man. He was the deacon at my church in Cleveland. He was my uncles from Mississippi. He was all these Black men that I knew. and And so I knew how he held himself. I knew how he sat. I knew that he always had a toothpick in his mouth. I knew, I just knew all those things about him. So that's the thing that when I'm first reading, I go, do I know this person? Do I know who they are? And if I don't, that's when the other technical things start to come into play to help me figure out how they move, how they sit, how they, because those things help me. The, 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 sh- the outer shape, the shell of this person right. dictates what, how they think and feel and engage the world. Has there ever been a role for you where you went in before the rehearsals thinking, oh, I know exactly who this guy is. He's A. And by the end of the rehearsal process, you said, no, my God, no, he's actually B. Huh. That's interesting. Uh, I don't think that there, there, it's not like I knew everything at the beginning. No, 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 of course. Uh, but like with Rent, I thought it was really funny because I became a professor at NYU. Um, but uh, <laughs> I made it all the way down to the end off Broadway. And so, and I've never told this story. I, at the very end of the second callback, third callback, they called my agent and they said, we're really interested in him for one of these roles. We don't know which one, um, but we know we want him. And it was opening at the same time that Violet finally was coming to play Rights Horizons. So I said to my agent, take me out. 
because there's no way after three years I'm not going to do Violet because we had done Violet at Eugene O'Neill. And then the next year we did it at Lincoln Center. Lincoln Center held on to it for a year and then they passed. And then we did it at Matt Theater Club. We did it at Playwrights. We did it everywhere. And everyone kept passing on it. And finally, after three years, Playwrights Horizon said, yes, we'll do it. And so I had lived with that character mm. and been a part of that entire journey for four years. There's no way, there's no way I was going to let somebody else do it. Um, so I said, I don't want to do Rent. And I wasn't really all that excited about it. I, I, the music didn't do anything for me. I was like, eh. And it was actually why I got Rent was Violet. So I did Violet and Michael Greif and Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Sellers all came to see it. And then I got a call to audition for the national tour. And I said, I'm not going on the road. I'm not doing mm-hmm. that. That's a no. I didn't go in. Then I got a call to go in for the LA company that was starting there. I said, no. And then at that time, there was talk of Violet moving to Broadway. And then it got a mediocre review from someone who gave it a rave many years later. It killed it. And I was like, I was devastated. So I was like, yeah. I just want a post office job. I want something that's going to be open for a while. I don't want my heart and something to get broken by the industry again. And sure enough, um, Jesse got a TV show and they called me and said, can you come in and audition for Tom Collins for Broadway? I auditioned on like a Thursday and I started on the following Tuesday. It was the path that I was supposed to take. And it was a year after it opened. So people were still sleeping outside. It was still during the height of the insanity. Um, But to answer your question, I was not that crazy about the show and it was only through the doing of the show. He was another character in the doing. I went, oh, I know who he is. Mm-hmm. I, knew who he, I knew who he was. And then it was just about, okay, now how do I use myself to bring him to life? Yep. And that's what that journey became. And then to get to do it six years later, after I had a really bad breakup of a relationship. So I understood love and loss and all that in a totally different way. Yeah. It was a real gift. It, oh, yeah. So it turned out to be a really, really a blessing. That show It's a blessing. What do you look for out of a director? <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're just trying to start some shit, aren't you? No, uh, no. Uh, this is everybody. No, what do you look for? Out of, or the ideal actor-director relationship from your point of view? Directors are hard for me because yeah. I carry a lot of baggage. So I do better with female directors than male directors. I like directors who give feedback, but don't control you, but trust you. Ah, mm. uh, okay. I've worked, with, I've worked with every kind of director. I've worked with directors where everything you do on stage is fantastic. And then it's like, okay, I know everything I'm doing up here and great. So What's the secret, let me, yeah. Right? <laughs> let me get my, my, my toolbox out and start figuring out how to bring this to life because I'm not going right. to get what I need there. It's really a conversation. Um, and a good director first knows how to cast a show. That's the biggest gift of a director. And then also knows the different needs of each of their actors. So there are some actors that you have that you need to really kind of get in the weeds with and and give them a lot of support. And then there's some that you can give them one word and they're like, "Ah, I got it. And there's some like, talk to me about, and you can have that conversation. Right. right. And those who say, they say, talk to me, don't don't talk, do it. Right. So that it's almost like being a psychic slash therapist in a yeah, way, right. yeah. artistic therapist. And so those are the ones I like working with, the ones who are able to kind of figure out what you need and help you get across the finish line. And as an actor, what do you think you need? Do you need a lot of discussion? Do you need one word? Do you need, let me just do it over and over? What do you need? 
I need to know at the beginning of it, when I'm the most vulnerable, that I'm on the right path. Ah, okay. But then once I get on that path, then I just need, you know, tell me what you what you want to see. I know the path now. Now, is it paved here? Is it cobblestone here? Is it brick? <laughs> what is it? And you said, you, well, I'm, I'm going to ask you, when you when you get into a situation where you and the director in the rehearsal are not on the same page, mm. how does one negotiate and navigate that? And you don't have to give any, and you don't have to give any specific examples, but I'm just asking, you know, how does one navigate that? I've been very lucky in that even when I've had interesting relationships with directors, they have been respectful. And even if I felt like I was out there on my own or I was in a castle, the cast felt like we're out here on our own, the cast was strong enough to support each other through it. Yes. I've had more challenging relationships with directors once I became a creative on shows than I had when I was an actor. Oh, right. tell, tell me more. Now, you, once again, no specific, exa- you don't have to give specific examples, but what do you mean? What I'm starting to understand is my work as a creative on shows. I need to be very clear about what my objectives are and what ah. my needs are artistically from this thing and understand the road and the understand my lane and also understand mm. the personalities, dynamics in the space so that I have clarity going in. So when it starts to bark and it is a dog, I'm not surprised. Yes. <laughs> you know what I yes. mean? Like, yes. Yes. And you can, you know, like, yeah. yes. So it's when you go in thinking it's going to be this thing that's collaborative or this or that, and then you get in a room and the personalities start to shift and you're disappointed or surprised that it then becomes a challenge. You've had a very multi-hyphenated career. I mean, I feel like anyone that's been in this business for a couple decades is going to have that. Did you know when you were starting out that you, you know, you liked being leading a choir, that you were going to, you know, teach, that you were also going to be a leading man? I mean, did you know going into it that you would have this sort of multi-hyphenated career? And then follow up to that is how do you balance it? How do you do more than one thing? Actually, no, I did not. When I graduated, like I said, I'd never done any leading man roles because right character guy. I yeah. did. I was, and so when my when I got here, and my agent, same agent, I've still been the, the same agent since I graduated, and they were sending me out to, on all these young leading man things, and I was like, "Why are you sending me on this stuff?" And right. I'm like, "Michael, you're a leading man," and 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 it took them saying it for me to kind of go, "Oh, okay." But only reason that BIV came up was because. Of circumstances, the AIDS epidemic, wanting to do something for our community, wanting to do something that was spiritual but inclusive, all those things. And so for me, it's always been about trying to be present and fully engaged in where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, these other avenues have kind of popped open and I went, oh, okay, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but never did I feel like they conflicted they all kind of rolled in the way that it was supposed to. So in those years, even though it doesn't seem like I didn't have a job, there were times where I was not working on Broadway or off Broadway, that I was all I was doing was BIV. But when I look back on it, I never ever felt artistically starved mm. because I was always doing something that centered my art, that filled me up and right. allowed me to give and receive. And then because I did BIV, I was starting to create arrangements because... We had to do that. And because of that, then I got, you know, jobs doing vocal arrangements for shows. So it wasn't like I set out to go, oh, I want to be a vocal arranger or I want to be a composer. I was writing, I wrote a three-act musical in high school, you know, (laughs) but I did, that was never what I wanted to do. It's just, I believe that if you're fully present and open, 
the path that you think is never the path you end up on. It's always got surprises. If you're fully in the moment and doing everything you can to make this moment as rich and full and complete and complicated and messed up and messy as it can be, the next thing will pop, it'll happen. And then you just have to be able to say yes. And it's usually been things that have scared the crap out of me that I say yes to. And I hate it. (laughs) But it's so exciting. It's so exciting. It's scary and exciting. Good morning, Mama. Liza, darling. We've got to help the boys at Behind the Curtain. Oh, Broadway's living legends. Oh, it's marvelous. Well, what, what would they like? Some cream of wheat? No, Mama, they want some money. Money? Well, let's send them a great big bag of money. No, all you have to do is go to patreon.com. You know, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and, and you set up a monthly donation. Money makes a world go around, Mama. Oh, don't I know? Patreon.com. Do it now. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I think this is a great time. Can you talk a little bit about BIV and how it got started and what it does? Sure. Um, when I moved here in 1990, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I don't think, I think this COVID, that when it erupted in New York City, I don't think many cities in the United States saw what we saw in March of 2020 through that first year. And that's the closest thing I think this generation of human beings can kind of identify with it. But to see and to work with, you know, actors, dancers, stage managers, company managers, directors, choreographers, one day, and then literally what seemed like a month later, they were either dead or, you know, wasted away. Or I mean, it was just, there's no... You just can't find your mind or heart around it. You just, there was no way to make peace with it. So what we do, what we do as artists is we roll our sleeves up and we do what we can. And out of that came Broadway Cares and Equity Fast AIDS. Came out of a time of feeling helpless and wanting to do something. And we could raise money. We could do that. But there was nothing being done for our spirits. You know, we were really ravaged by this, right? Just Because there's no, you just can't, where do you put that? You know what I mean? And um, and I was only on the tail end of it. There are people who I know who are friends of mine who were there at the very beginning of it and went through the whole thing and lost hundreds of friends, right? And so growing up in church and having navigated through college years trying to figure out my spirituality separate from religious dogma, I knew that this music had brought me a kind of solace as I was kind of navigating this horrible time. So I wanted to do something with it. I knew I wanted to to be a diverse group of people. 
And I just wanted to share the music because I also understood that so many people in our community had been harmed by religious institutions that told them because they weren't A, B, C, D, they weren't welcome there. So I wanted to create a space that was inclusive, that was diverse, that just celebrates the power of the music mm. separate from any kind of re religious doctrine. Uh, and so the first year I had 11 singers. It was Alice Ripley, Adrian Lennox, Billy Porter, um, who else was up there? Um, Fuchsia Walker, Sharon Leal, who's done a lot more film stuff and TV. Oh, yeah. uh, Ty Taylor, who's now a rock singer, does all this rock singer, went to college together. And we just sang 13, 14 songs. And the response was so healing. And it became a yearly fundraiser for Broadway Cares, annual fundraiser, until 1999 when we went out on our own and started doing much more in the community, TV, recordings, things like that. And then we became a not-for-profit in 2007 mm -hmm. to expand so that we could do outreach programs into the community, working with um, Ronald McDonald House, working with Covenant House to bring music programs to these communities that needed music. So that's why I did it. Uh, it grew. I never in a million years thought it would grow to be what it is today. Once again, mm -hmm. not knowing the end of the journey, just saying yes and going on the path. Mm -hmm. And I really don't want to put myself out there as some, you know, like angel. I, I mean, I, I'm, it's, you know what I mean? My life has been messy. It has been complicated. It, my career has been messy and complicated. Things have happened. But through it all, I've tried to be present and be open and try to be the best version of myself that mm. I can be and honor my mistakes um, and try not to have any regrets. May we all be able to live like that. Oh, That's like so, yeah. so beautiful. Ow. One of the things that we love to do on this program, if you feel comfortable with it, is we want to make sure that people remember those that passed away from AIDS. Mm. Do you remember, is there anyone that you would like to specifically talk about so mm. their name lives on? Nephi Wimmer. Nephi, my first Broadway show was Miss Saigon. I went into the show three months after it opened and there was this beautiful dancer. There were three guys who did acro, you know, which I, to this day, I still don't understand because the stage was raked from the downstage to upstairs, upstage was six feet, That's right? Insane. That's where the equity rule has come from, was from this show. And then you increase the six feet by the platform heels that the women and the men wore, right? Um, and they were doing full out acrobatic acrobats down the the downstage at this six foot rate on the six foot right and he was a beautiful dancer he was a native american funny uh witty and just a beautiful man inside and out and a beautiful dancer uh and he was the first person i knew personally that i watched get sick and his partner was in the show as well and pass away and I remember I'd left the show to do Tommy. I, I was in Miss Saigon. I left Miss Saigon to do High Rollers. High Rollers opened and closed. And then I, it just so happened that Hinton Battle left the show Miss Saigon at the time. And so I went back because Alton moved up to John. And so it just so happened that there was a slot. And I moved back into Miss Saigon for another seven months. And the Who's Tommy came along. I auditioned, went through the five or six callbacks that that had at that time. Oh. And then, yeah. And then uh, left Miss Saigon to do The Who's Tommy. Turns out The Who's Tommy was one of Nephi's favorite shows. He was a big fan of The Who. So mm. during previews, I asked the producers if I could get a ticket for him to come and see the show. And he showed up, he was probably about hundred pounds, oxygen tank. Mm. Um, and was just 
he was exhausted, but it was just such a wonderful opportunity for me to see the show that he loved so much. And I think that was the last time I saw him. So if anyone I want to name, it would be him because that seeing him, knowing him, watching him was one of the biggest shifts for me that made it personal. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And thank yeah, you for really, mentioning you. his name. The, the Who's Tommy, you look at the, the ensemble of that, that show, know, right? it's kind of oh, stupid. Yeah. I mean, right? like, Sherry Scott, you, Alice Ripley. I mean, there's Norm. like... Norm. Norm. That's right. Norm, of course. Norm. So tell us a little bit about what this, because this is the first of this sort of real, we are used to rock shows, we're used to pop shows on Broadway right now. Mm-hmm. We didn't get a lot of that in the in the nine. I mean, you had like the British invasion, but that's not the style of what this is. What was it like going through this rehearsal process? You have Des Mackinac directing, you've got a, a, quite an amazing team. And, and Wayne Did you know what it was going to be? Wayne Slinter. Did you know that it was going to be this sort of mega hit? What, what was the process like going into that? Well, I knew the movie, and the movie scared the crap out of me. I remember right. the smashing of the mirror, and just it just I remember having nightmares about it when I was little, that movie. And when my agent sent me the thing to audition at that time, I was young, so I just auditioned for everything. Whatever they right. sent me, I auditioned for. I prepared my song. I think my song was uh, Get Back, the Beatles song, Get Back. Get back oh, to where you yeah. once belong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then I got called back. And then they had me come and sing again. And then I got called back again. Then I had to dance. Was it on a Broadway stage or was it in the studio at this point? It was at 890. Okay. Ah, the old everything classics, was the, top, the Michael Bennett studios. That's right. Everything was there. And um, I had auditioned on the stage for Miss Saigon. But, okay. but for um, Who's Tommy, everything was at, even our rehearsals were at 890. And I did the dance call. And then they called me back again to read for, to sing for the specialist and for the hawker. And then I had a session with the dialect coach. And then I came back in to um, do everything with Pete in the room mm. and sing all that material. And then I was cast in the ensemble to cover the hawker and the specialist. And then a week before rehearsals, the guy who was supposed to play, who had played it on the West Coast, got a TV show. Mm. And so he left. They bumped me up to the hawker, but kept me in the ensemble because this guy only did the hawker and the specialist. He didn't dance. That was it. <laughs> so I, it, right? I danced and did the hawker. Norm was hired like a few days before rehearsal started as the specialist. So I did both the dance track and the hawker. Some, and that's another one where the first time I had to do it in rehearsal, I just knew who he was. I knew how right. he walked. I knew his his mojo. I knew his like oiliness. I just I I just knew who he was. Do you like auditioning? Absolutely not. So how do you get uh, how do you get through it? I make sure I'm off book. Even if I hold papers in my hand, right. I know it. But <laughs> my friend told me a long time ago, when you hold a paper, it just tells them that the work isn't done yet. That's right. That's you know, right. I this one she said, I come in the room with a water bottle and my 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 pages and I'm and I let them know that I'm here to work. That's how I let them know I'm here to work. And so I hold the pages and usually I'll type all the words out so I'm not flipping. But I know it so, because if I have to think about a line or a lyric, I'm dead. The nerves take over. So one of the things that I learned to do before I step into a room, right before I cross the threshold, I'll say to myself, Michael, be present. And it makes me have to look people in the eye and shake their hands and speak to them, talk to the accompanist. And it keeps me out of my nerves. And then because I know I know the material, auditions, are the way I try to teach them is that it is, t- it is an opportunity for you to go in the room and transform it through your storytelling. Mm. And it is an opportunity to engage your craft. So it should be a celebratory experience. Mm. So whatever you need to do to go in to do your best work, 
you need to know what that process is. For some people, they like to wing it a little bit. That's not me. I've always looked at technique and studying and memory, uh, memorizing as being kind of a trampoline <laughs> so that when I leap, if I go down, I've got something underneath me to bounce up from, but not cement that kind of holds me in my place. So, yeah. you know, auditioning, uh, but it's a necessary part of what we do. Yeah. Um, and it's an opportunity to go in the room and share this gift. So gift. Yeah. how how do you think auditioning has changed from when you first started out to now in 2022? I think this digital thing is something that has changed things. It's interesting. Back when I was younger, <laughs> mm-hmm. auditions felt more impersonal. I think that, the once again, the dynamics have shifted, you know, whereas you used to have a certain ilk of director slash choreographer, correct, you know, who came up at a time where they could say and do pretty much anything to you. And once again, we were conditioned right. not to respond or have an avenue to respond to it. That's not the world we live in now. So it's kind of shifted that, you know, it continues to shift in terms of how creatives speak to artists in the room around things like the Me Too movement. There are laws, you can't ask them what their race is, their identity is, you can't ask how how old people are, all of those things. But it also, what I think creatives are realizing is, instead of creating an environment that people have to fight through to do their work, that doesn't really activate artists anymore. So you want to create an environment where they can do their best work so they can freaking solve your problem. So most directors that I've worked with on that side of the table try to create a space where artists can do their best work. Because if they're not, they're going to keep auditioning until they find people. So I think most people want actors to do, to do well in the room. Did you have a go-to audition song? I did. Yeah. Um, what was it? When I first moved here, my ballad was Without a Song. Without a song, right? Until I found the real lyrics, and then I had to retire her. When I was teaching, I assigned the song and got an older version of the uh, music. And so um, the second verse is, that field of corn would never see a plow. That field of corn would be deserted now. A man is born, but he's no good, no how. Without a song, the real lyrics are, that field of corn would never see a plow. That field of corn would be deserted now. A darkie's born, but he's no good, no how. Without a song. And I was like, huh? Uh-uh. <laughs> and so not only did I not give that to my student, but I had to remove her from my book. And my other song, go-to song, which I also did for Tommy, was Lady Marmalade. So You Wanted to Meet the Wizard was my up-tempo. Yes. But my pop R&B song was Lady Marmalade. Uh, my rock song was Get Back. Uh, my up-tempo was 50 million years ago or so you wanted to meet the wizard and my ballad was um without a song another one i used to do all the time was she's got away billy joel yep um good thing going was another ballad oh, yeah so that was like my my go-to a good book yeah yeah which my voice teacher still has from 1991 <laughs> and so when i see her she's like are you gonna come get this damn carnegie mellon book <laughs> out of my artist drawer over here I said, time flies time flies has to keep it it means something Kevin, do you want to ask about your favorite show? Yeah, so you <laughs> let's talk about Violet because clearly, yes. I, in full disclosure, I've always loved this show. I was even at the concert in 2003 that opened up Playwrights Horizons. I was there? a puddle in the front row. I remember oh. I was I couldn't even stand up, and Roz Ryan was like, "Oh, baby," because <laughs> like, I was such a mess. <laughs> I literally couldn't even stand up. Okay, but um, so tell take us a little bit on this because you you alluded to the gestation process of a new musical and how you know fulfilling it can be, and also how disappointing 
disappointing it can be. You know, I was shocked, you know, 20 years later, it came to Broadway, and I was like, see everybody? Hello, like, where have you guys been? Because this has been around for, this is the most brilliant piece of art that I, mm-hmm. it's the reason why I love theater. It's literally the reason why. Um, what, take us a little bit on the journey of, like, when you first got it, you know, mm-hmm. in, interacting with Janine Tesori's music, you know, this mm-hmm. is one of the first shows that she had written, and, and just go in a little bit about that gestation process for you, if you well, don't mind. Of course, I don't mind. Yeah. Well, to go back to the I, everything just tying together, right? Um, the Who's Tommy, the associate conductor was Janine Tesori. Janine, yeah. And so what happened was in Tommy, they put me on first tenor because I could sing anywhere. And so right. the first act I was on first tenor, second act I was on bass, <laughs> and then for the listening to you at the end, I went back to first tenor. <laughs> and so because I was always all over the place, Janine and I just started to talk and she'd be like, put Michael on, put Michael. And so we became friends in the Who's Tommy. So we would always talk about what we wanted to do and we just really were close. Yeah. And there was uh, some things that happened there that kind of were the catalyst for her saying, you know what? My friend has given me their lighthouse up in Maine. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to work on a show. And she put in her notice and left Tommy. I was still doing the show. I did the show for a year and a half. And when she came back to visit uh, a few months later, she's like, I wrote this show and I wrote this part for you. And you have to audition, but I wrote it for you. And I went to put in to see if they'd give me time off because it had been accepted to Eugene O'Neill and they wouldn't give me the time off. And so I put in my notice and I left and I auditioned for the show before I put in my notice. And I remember I sang The Water is Wide uh, and uh, for Susan Shulman, um, Kathleen Marshall. No, Kathleen wasn't there at the time. It was Susan Shulman, Brian Crowley, and Janine Tesori. And then we went up to um, the Eugene O'Neill, which was an experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cass Morgan, Stevie Lee Anderson, Christian Hoff played Monty mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, the Violet was a different actress. I don't remember her name. It'll come to me. Amanda something. And we were five weeks. Uh, we stayed in an office building mm-hmm. on a um, facility for people who were mentally di- differently abled. And it was literally an office building where each office, there was a single bed, Mm-mm. a desk, and a chair. And then in the hallway, there was a bathroom for the men with a shower in it and one for the women. You didn't go there for the lodging. Now it's oh, different, but not at the rustic. time. Yeah. yeah. And so every day we worked on Violet, but we also were cast on two other shows that were shorter things. One was about math. It was a musical about math. I remember that. And the other was something else. And But Violet was the main focus. And we started working and she wrote Let It Sing. And it was a fourth lower. And it was like um, two kinds of people in this world. And I was like, um, (laughs) can we take it out? She's like, sure. What? Half step? I was like, a fourth? (laughs) Okay. So then we did. And then at the end, she's like, just do stuff at the end. Just do whatever you want here. And that's why I came up with all that stuff at the end. Yes. in In the... Right. But we only did as far as Promise Me Violet. That was the end of it. And so at the end of the performances, at the end of the, I think it was we were there two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, something like that. We would share it with different people. They had invited to see the show. And afterwards, they, they loved it. They really responded to it. And they were like, so who does she end up with? And in the book, she ends up with Monty. The Doris Betts short story, she right. ends up with Monty. Pilgrim. Yeah. Right. And when they said that, when the creative team said that, the the audience went ballistic. They were like, absolutely not. There's no way that we believe that he could ever take care of her or t- no, 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 no. She should end up with, like, they had never even thought about it. Flick was gone. I was, I was pulling the original Effie and, and Dream Girls. At the end of the band, I'm telling you, I was gone, right? <laughs> and so they, they, 
after seeing it, they went, the way this character is written, the way these characters are drawn, they're right. So then they started writing the second act, which really had to look at how this would end up going Flick's way, which is what inspired, at the time they had written this song called um, If We Close Our Eyes. And it was it happened after Violet sleeps with Monty instead of Flick and they get into that fight. And in, in the script, in the book, she called him the N-word. And so that was an originally in the story. And I said, this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And then and they're definitely going to he ain't going to sing no duet after mm-hmm. she uses it. And we finally worked our way around to, and I love Janine and Brian because they were so open to the conversations. I said, because once she says that, there's no way back. So they had to go and have many conversations about what is really going on. And what they figured out was that Flick was jealous. So it became a very human person based on specific experiences that caused that fight. And it was three or four workshops later that they came up with hard to say goodbye, right? But it was personal about these two in this moment. And it wasn't this macro, use the N-word to, to, to right. right? And so those were like a couple of things that happened along the way. Um, and then literally it was in playwrights, we were in previews when they wrote uh, look at me, sweet Violet, look at me. That, that, that didn't happen until like a week before we opened. <laughs> and I learned that like on a day and it oh, went yeah. in that night, right? Yeah. So they were constantly fiddling with it. I do believe that if Violet was written today, it would not be done. Huh. Why? The world we live in today would not embrace the subject matter, mm-hmm. given the way we, and that's the thing about how the world shifts and how we view things in a different way. And that's sad to me because I love this show and it was a big part of who I am. I think it's a beautiful, wonderfully, um, wonderful show for actors, the music, all of that. Mm -hmm. But the use of the N-word, the fact that uh, the messaging of a disfigured white female and that this black man will look at her and think that that is who he should be. I mean, it's all of this complex stuff, whether we agree with it or not, the way we've been socialized in this moment, Mm -hmm. we look at things differently. And so through a different lens. And so I don't know if you can unsee or, un, you know, put that back in, well, which is too bad. Yeah. So when you do the show now, you have to have disclaimers. You have to have trigger warnings. You have to have yeah. all of those things. Even doing it, the difference between when I directed it uh, with Josh Henry when he was a sophomore at University of mm-hmm. Michigan and when they did it at University of Michigan in 2018, which was maybe five years, all the conversations that needed to happen around the N-word, around you know, how it's used, where it's used, uh, the choir and who's singing this music. And all of that stuff was very complex and very different, even to who's directing it. You know, those things are different today. Okay, so now when you were directing it, going on the other side of the table, mm-hmm. did anything about the piece reveal it to itself when you were now looking at the overall picture of everything? Or maybe you knew it so intimately at that point. Yeah, I did know it intimately, but it, it, it's... Directing it, what I what I was more focused on was the first time I'd ever directed anything. Oh, okay. And Vince Cardinal was the chair of the department, so he was a real support system for me in that way. I was more conscious of not putting my idea of flick onto Josh Henry. Ah, okay. And in a certain way, he was a sophomore, so in a way I felt like I almost did him a disservice because I left him so much alone mm-hmm. because I didn't want him to have the pressure of me like trying right. to make him into a version of me. That wasn't what I wanted. But we had used a lot of um, images to create place. And there was a revolving stage. I mean, it was all these different things that I was trying to figure out how I could tell the story my way and not do what I just knew. Yeah. But sometimes it's it's hard when you acted a show that didn't direct it because you don't know how to step outside of it 
to see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So Vince was always having to kind of help me go, what's that light doing there? Why is there more light on the mm-hmm. floor? Than on? Because I got caught up in the story from an actor's perspective. Uh, yeah. And even now I still have to make myself look at the whole picture when I'm directing something mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. get caught up in the character's journey. And then I'm on the character's journey. And meanwhile, the person's in the dark over here. Sure. And I'm, sure. right? <laughs> so it's hard to turn off my actor brain now to be able to take in the big picture. Do you like directing? I like it. I don't love it, but I know enough skill sets to be able to help guide actors, but I will do it. But I think it's it's not my calling and it's not the thing that wakes me up in the morning going, oh, I have to do that. What does wake you up in the morning? Now, um, mentoring and creating new work. I think being a part of the next journey of young artists is important to me. Uh, service. I grew up as, in a, you know, as I said, as a preacher's kid, so that idea of service and giving back and knowing that there are many mentors and people in my life who are responsible for creating paths for me, mm. so giving that back. And it's so fulfilling now that I'm getting to work with, and one of my bosses uh, at NYU would say that being a student right now and being a teacher is one of the most uninteresting things, least interesting things about you. He said, but we got to get it right because you're going to be my future collaborator. So we have to get Uh, this right. And so now I get an opportunity 10 years later, I'm working with my grads from NYU. You know, Jelani Aladdin is one of my grads that I I have worked with, you know. So, you know, it's that's exciting. Now I get to have, you know, these wonderful co-artists relationships. So that mentorship, that figuring out how to crack the nut of how we talk about things, how we deal with difficult subject matter, how we navigate when things trigger folks and all of that. For my generation, it's like, what are we doing? Because that wasn't a part of it, but this is the reality. So let's stop complaining and beating our heads up against the wall about that this is the way it is and get about the work of how do we get them to these standards of excellence through the ways in which they are socialized. And it's almost like a puzzle. And that to me is interesting. What do you look for out of a student? Or like, what is the ideal teacher-student relationship for you? I think it's very different than the one that I grew up in, which was we bowed down at the all-knowing feet of the guru <laughs> teacher, who if they knew our names, that was mm-hmm. that was like the dessert. It was, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. There was no, it just wasn't a part of the socialization or dynamic that they know us. That's not the case today. And it w- we would never have thought or assumed that who we were was welcomed in the room. Today, this generation of artists demands so, that you see who I am, all of who I am, and that is welcome in the work. And I'm fine with that, as long as we also agree that this is also about transformation. And I want you to be able to do more than just who you are or how mm-hmm. you identify, which I want to celebrate. And we can find assignments and song selections and all that so you can do that, because I want you to feel I've given the traumas and things that I carry. I want you to know what it feels like to bring your fullness into the space. And then as you bring your fullness, you learn how to turn the dials up and down to then kind of calibrate them to meet the needs of the character. So that is how I try to engage my students. It is a conversation now. It's not a top-down thing anymore. So I'll say, this is what I'm thinking. And then I want them because it also allows them or it forces them to have to think about it from all sides. And so it's much more of a conversation. Uh, I am grateful for my career and I'm really grateful for rent because rent, you know, there's a thing now in teaching. And I know you know what this is like, Robert, to have to 
that there's sometimes a kind of thing of, you know, prove to me that I should listen to you yeah, when I, folks first get there. Yeah. And because everybody has seen Rent. Right. And it's preserved. <laughs> yes. yes. I can skip that part. And then it's mine to lose. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. It, my career has blessed me in the world of academia to have something that students can look at and say, he's done this. I'm going to start from a place of listening to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, right? yes, like, yes, I yes. think he knows what he's talking about. We'll yes. see. The Be- Wild Party, another yes, another oh, yeah. favorite of mine. What's it like being in a room with George C. Wolfe? We've heard many stories, but uh, the man has no energy whatsoever. Um, but just curious what this, and you had a lot of personalities uh, in this this little, you I don't think? know. I, I don't you know think? if you noticed at all. <laughs> well, here's the fun fact. I was actually in the last workshop of Andrew Lippa's The Wild Party. I played black what? in the very the five week workshop of the Wild Party. Andrew Lippa's the Wild Party. Right. Marin Maisie was Queenie. Oh my God. Jim Barber was Burge. Oh my God. Sara Ramirez was Kate, and that's oh. why "Let's Raise the Roof" has that Latin feel. It was originally Kate's song. Oh my God. Right. I didn't know and that. then when Jeffrey Sellers and the Rent producing team came on oh, board. Okay. They wanted Tay and Adina and all those things, and which is fine. Right. But when I got booted from that, I got a call for the audition from for the Wild Party for the Broadway company. Now they had done right. two workshops, and right, right, I right. was never involved. My audition was to come in the room and play because at the time they wanted the Brothers Armando to play the piano, and I played the piano. Okay. So they were like, "Learn this thirty-five page song uh-uh. and sing it from the piano," and it was a song that individually was cut. But it was called the Orangutan Song, and it was one of the songs that the Brothers Darmano were famous for. Mm. And it was like piano stride kind of thing. I had to learn. I mean, it literally was probably 30 pages. And, it, and I had to sing it at the same time. And it was all this Mm-mm. while I was singing. So I practiced, 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 practiced. Went into the room. I think it was 890 Broadway. Uh, and sat down at that piano. And it was this kind of weird, like, oh, the kind of thing at the beginning. And then it went into all this. And, you know, there's sometimes when you walk in the room and you start to work that that little voice says, this is yours. This is it. And I literally started, I did it. And then they had me stand over at the piano and sing Taboo. Mm-hmm. And then I got a call that I got it. And then they had me come back in to audition with the two final guys for the other brother. Right. And it was James. Oh, he's passed away. He used to live across the street from me. It'll come to me. And Nathan Lee Graham. Nathan. And when Nathan walked in, he had on this pinstripe gray, pinstripe (laughs) double-breasted Gucci suit with hand bow tied, you know, and he walked in, that shaved head, and I went, that's him. Mm -hmm. And we sat down and we started doing that scene, and I was like, this is him. And so we were two of the five people who were new to the company. And so we started rehearsals. Norm was new. I was Mm -hmm. new. Tanya Pinkins was new. Uh, Nathan. And one of the, no, both of the... um, Gold, Golden Goldberg were, mm-hmm. were from the past. And I think it was us. And we started a couple weeks early to learn some of the music. We started at the public. And I think Eartha came in and Mandy came in and Tony was there because she was new. And I love that rehearsal process. You know, George is a lot of energy in the room. And there was a lot of energy amongst those casts. Because the nice. idea was to cast principals. Very strong personalities. and. It was never not interesting. Right. And it was always fun. And I loved it. I loved every part of it. It was, you know, and then we got into previews and then the cuts were coming left and right. We learned wild 
after a Sunday matinee on the steps at the Virginia, at the time it was called the Virginia Theater, right. after a show, and it went in the following Wednesday, that mm-hmm. whole number. And it replaced the orangutan song and other things that were part of that fight as things were starting to kind of break down. So it was like fast and furious. And I loved it. I loved every part of it. It was a fantastic experience. How does Mr. Wolf direct? He is a a, a treasure trove of information, mm-hmm. right? And so he's a, a brilliant dramaturg in his own right. So he is the strongest energy in the room, but he has so he's so freaking brilliant. You you have to give it up for him for it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now he'll say blah 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 for like ten minutes, and then he'll turn the choreographer. Okay, now go do it. And he'll sometimes say stuff to you that's so historically based in something that lives in your DNA that you go, oh, I know what that is. Or he'll say something that's so like intellectual. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Okay, let me just try some stuff and see what happens, right? So, but it was never not interesting. And because the people in the room were such principal artists, we knew how to work off of each other and band together and feed each other and like go at each other in ways that helped to bring those characters and that story to life. What was it like sharing the stage with Miss Ursula Kitt? I loved her. We got to be really good friends, she and Nathan and I, because we would stand on stage and there were times when the, the revolving uh, stage, it would turn and we'd be upstage. And so we'd be kind of just talking. And she would say stuff like, you know, you have to come out to my house and visit and we'll have barbecue. We'll do something. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We will. And then fast forward to the week after we closed at 7.30 a.m., my phone rang Mm-mm. and I did not pick up because it was 7.30 in the morning. It's Saturday morning. And then I go to my messages and I listen back and he goes, Michael, it's Eretha. What train are you on? She was serious. So Nathan and I, you know, got ourselves up, got on the train and went out to her house and spent the day. We went to the grocery store. We cooked food. We hung out. We barbecued. And that became kind of a little bit of a ritual where either we'd go out there or um, when she came into the city, we'd go to dinner or we'd go to see a show. I went to see mm. shows with her all the time. Nathan did. And then when she got ill, Nathan and I went out for the last time, right before Thanksgiving. And she was in her bed, but her daughter had put a microphone stand with a microphone over the bed and a recorder so she could just talk and tell stories. And so we laid in bed with her for like four or five hours and just laughed and talked. And I think that next day she went into the hospital and then she didn't come out until I think the day before she passed away so she could be at home. But the stories that she told, talk about a life. Talk about an experience. Talk about a career. Um, Talk about beating the odds. Talk about creating yourself from the ground up. Talk about being kicked out, (laughs) you know, because going to that, you know, luncheon and saying, why are you sending our our boys over there to be killed? And not knowing for like 20 years that you had been blackballed because every place that you had a standing job from Vegas to Atlantic City to New York, the FBI had gone to and told them if they, that they could not hire you and you not knowing. So you went off to Europe and didn't know until a New York Times columnist said, did you know? And then spending the rest of your life trying to get those unsealed documents. You know what I mean? Just a life, yeah. you know? Every time someone told her, dared her to do something, she did it. I dare you, you won't, you couldn't be a dancer. She auditioned for the Martha Dunham. You know, she, she did that. I dare you, you couldn't sing. She put a cabaret together in Paris and did that. You know what I mean? It's like, she was... There was only one Eartha Kitt. Yeah. <laughs> only one. You know, and that I was blessed to once again be exposed to these greats that I grew up watching to be able to know when you're in the room with those people what that meant. And I think there's a generation today that doesn't understand it in that way. Yeah. 
that's part of the reason why we started this podcast was to to make sure that people can remember some of these these amazing you know legends. And we actually tried for a really long time to get Miss Carol as well, um, and it just never worked out. Can you can you share some experiences about working with her? Her script for Blue was in her gold embossed script cover from Julia. Oh. So it's that red hard case. You know how you open it up and you extend it and you put it in and it snaps closed? Yes. Her script was in that. And it was this red, you know, the red with the gold flecks in it. She, once again, old school. You know, you never had to worry about her because it didn't matter on stage when she came, she turned that thing on, it was on, right? When you've been doing this and continue to exercise those skills for 30, 40, 50 years, you know how to do it. We went to lunch. As I said, I waited till I got to know her because I didn't want to fawn over her. We went to lunch out in um, Pasadena because that's where we were doing the show. I had done it in New York and now we're doing it in Pasadena. And I just wanted her to tell me about her life and her, her journey. And she told me that story about, um, what, was the, what was the show that The Sweetest Sound is from? It's the one she did. That she no, strings. no Strings. No Strings. And she told that story about that Detroit opening night. Did you know, you know that story? Well, no, tell us. Telling the story. Um, when they were in opening, you know, they used to open everything out of town. And yeah. Tour yeah. Out of, you know. And they were in Detroit before they came to Broadway. And she was the lead. And I, I don't want to say Robert Hooks, but I could be totally wrong. The two leads were African-American. And there was a socialite in Detroit. And at that time, Detroit was like, you know, very grand. It was Ford, you know, lots of money, lots of mansions. Yeah. And this socialite wanted to have the opening night at a party, party at her, her home. But there was a problem in that she did not have African-American people in her house as guests. No. Mm. So she had Richard Rogers have to go to Diane Carroll and tell her that she and the other lead were not invited to the opening night party. So I said, my God, what did you do? It was on opening night. I got on the God mic and I said, hey, everybody, after the party, I'm gonna, after the show, I'm just going to have a few friends across the street at the bar across the street just to have drinks and kind of hang out. And the entire cast went to her party. Yes. And so just to know, you know, and, and the reason I tell those stories and understand, like, you know, Eartha told stories of leaving Cuba as Fidel Castro was taking over the country and trying mm-hmm. to get back into the States. The legacy of what it means to be resilient, to work hard, and to understand that this process is a step-by-step as opposed to being entitled and knowing your power are two different things. Mm-hmm. And these folks worked from the ground up, like Leslie Uggams, doing like eight shows a day at the Apollo Theater when she was eight years old. They, that's why they can still do it today. So that idea of process, of being in the trenches and working your way up has value. It builds a thick skin. It builds a resilience. It builds a craft in a way that will serve you for years and years and years and years. But that's important. That's not valued in the world in which we live now. The world we live now is faster, faster. I want it now, yesterday. And we are socialized to fall prey to thinking that. And the artistic journey is the total opposite. It's about the process. It's about the journey. It's about the failing miserably. It's about, you know, the risks you take. And, and sometimes it works in something to build something. And so we have to figure out a way in this world of I want it yesterday and I deserve it mm-hmm. to partner with our young artists to say, okay, that is one way, but be open to this way and instill yeah. that in them as something of value. Yeah. Michael, our last question for you is, what do you know now that you wished you had known back in 1990 when you're coming to the city for the first time? I don't know jack squat. That's what I know now. (laughs) Uh, What I know now is that 
then I, everything existed in the black and white. And as you get older, much more, many more shades of gray. Mm. And that there is a joy and a freedom in not knowing jack squat. Mm. And that doesn't mean not having lived experience. I mean, yeah. surrendering to the fact that I don't have to know everything mm-hmm. and that I can live in that space of unknown with the lived experiences that I have and find my way. Michael in 1990 was so determined to do it right, determined to go in the room and prove that I had every right to be there. And luckily it worked for me um, because I had some, I had the skills to back it up. I worked really hard. There's a way to work hard that doesn't have to be so effort filled. (laughs) And there's a way to work that allows you to have more breath of, of, of messiness. Mm -hmm. I wish I had been more messy when I was younger. I was too afraid to be messy. Now, if I fall on my face, I fall on my, it's like, you know, I I relish those moments that I don't get many opportunities to do, but I relish those moments because in the messiness, that's where the beauty is. That's where the special sauce is, if you will, right? And I want to impart that to my students to have that freedom while also building a foundation of structure that is a trampoline, not cement. That's the Uh, the key. That's beautiful. Michael, I I wish I was 18 again so I could take your classes. Uh, Uh, It has been an absolute joy getting to talk to you today. And your students are so, so lucky. And we've been so lucky to see your beautiful performances over the years. And can't wait to see what's next for you. Um, Uh, Till next time, friends. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and more to shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was Betty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.